Good morning, everybody. This is Arash Amini with the Amini Corp Podcast on Friday, October 16th. I missed my podcast yesterday. It was an off day. But um, so, let's get to it. There is a major shift going on right now in the social media space. And what we're seeing is an end of an era. We're seeing the largest um, regulatory crackdown coming to the major social media platforms. I don't know if you all are aware, but the New York Post posted something, an article. uh, It was about the election. Twitter and Facebook decided to block that article at the domain level, meaning you cannot post that article and share it with the domain. It'll get the link will not be shared on your timeline. You cannot send a message with that link, that URL to anybody privately on either, I think at least Facebook, maybe even Twitter as well, without it being flagged and not allowed. Then the someone, I can't remember what the exact domain was, but Someone in the GOP, you know, some Senate, I don't know exactly what, at what level, posted that article, that domain on a GOP website, official, you know, like Senate website or something. And that was added to the block list. So now another article, I guess, is coming out, has come out, and you can also not share that one either until it's corroborated and fact-checked and et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't matter your opinion on the substance of the story because the story itself will be determined in time to be true or not, right? It's the fact that these social media platforms are policing content from a reputable source. I mean, I'm not an expert, but the New York Post is a reputable newspaper. It's certainly not... um, propaganda i mean i don't know it's like it's it's certainly not awful so again i'm not an expert but my point being that with that decision facebook and twitter have decided to become publishing uh social media uh, media publishers and not media platforms social media platforms and the difference is in the law whereby a media publisher is responsible for the contents of the articles that are published, right? Again, the New York Post can be sued for libel, defamation, false advertisement, all these different things because they are, you know, supposed to be vetting, they, 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 because they're responsible for what they publish, right? Um, and all media publishers are under the same uh, jurisdiction or what have you under the same uh, regulatory framework. They hire, they have to vet the people they hire, they have to vet the stories they publish, and they have to be held responsible for the stories they publish, right? Now, that's why they have sourcing and the fact checkers and an editorial review process and the whole gambit. Well, the problem with social media is that we're all generating content on behalf of these media conglomerates. And so we can't 
be pub, uh, we can't be physically, it's impossible to vet every post. So the FCC has designated a difference whereby if you're a platform allowing users to share, generate and share content, you are not held liable for their posts, they are. And so if you post something illegal, Facebook will work with authorities to connect you with the authorities that are looking for you, right? And of course, they are working constantly to filter out, you know, obviously illegal posts around, uh, you know, murder and sex crimes and what have you, right? But that's more of a policing strategy for the community to cultivate a better community where you're not seeing, you know, ISIS videos or other horrible videos. It's not illegal, meaning that if you post it, you're held liable, not Facebook. But Facebook will try to filter out some of it. And so now, though, with this New York Post article being um, being flagged at the domain, at the URL level, which is like never before done, um, and, and simultaneously, might I add, I saw on Twitter yesterday, several prominent Twitter accounts, verified public figures have been banned for talking about and posting that URL. And this is now opened up a can of worms where uh, Senator Ted Cruz is subpoenaing, subpoena, issued a subpoena or is re- requesting a subpoena for uh, boy, how do you say that one? Subpoenaing uh, the head of Facebook and Twitter to come in and testify about what's going on in front of the House Judiciary Committee. I'm not sure what he runs. And this is a big, big, big deal because there was a lot of anti-monopoly sentiment before this. There was a lot of discussion about censorship and the Free, you know, freedom of speech and the right to town hall and are these platforms uh, utilities? Are they, you know, what are they? They're obviously impactful in U.S. elections. We just went through a uh, impeachment process that spent tens of millions of dollars proving that foreign governments can use our own social media platforms against us and, and potentially sway votes, right? It was shown that Google itself can adjust and can in, impact uh, voting by millions of votes based on the news stories and polling, you know, the data that they show. Um, we saw that foreign intelligence services buy ads on Facebook to pit um, events against each other. I think the famous one was a anti-Islam rally next to a um, Islamic rally, something like that. It was like two groups that were fermented and positioned physically next door to each other by foreign actors. And then Twitter, right? And so all these platforms have a problem with bots. And in my advertisement world, it's a big deal to avoid bots is, is a complex thing. Because bots are effectively just software programs that mimic user patterns of a human being online. So they'll move the mouse, they'll click on it, they'll type certain words, etc. 
but it's really a computer program that's, you know, maybe posting across a thousand websites simultaneously and you don't have to go one by one and type in a message, copy and paste it. It just runs a script and it does it. If you've ever had, you know, a WordPress site or any type of blog with a comment section, you've seen the spam messages. Those aren't people putting those messages in. Sometimes they are, I should say, because the labor is so cheap uh, internationally that you can have these farms where people are doing all this constantly. But sometimes it's, it does make sense to hire bots in the ad space. And if you have a website up, I can, well, I can't cause I don't exactly know how, but people set up websites and then buy bots, bot traffic, just like fake followers, right? On social media, the bots come and click on the ads on my website. I get a penny per click from the advertiser and the return on investment, according to experts, is over 4,000%. And the amount of advertisement wasted on fraudulent clicks via bots is known to be at least 16 billion, I think last year, 2018. And so it's a big issue. It's highly profitable in that space. Nobody wants to deal with it because they can't and they all get paid on commission, if you will. And so they want more clicks. Everybody wants more clicks regardless, except the client, the client wants more sales and clicks are supposed to be a proxy for sales potential. Right. But so in our space that we're discussing today, social media bots are extremely powerful in controlling, not controlling, uh, shaping the narrative of the day, especially on a Twitter where Twitter is like the newswire service of the world. News breaks there first. And then the news outlets pick it up and then it gets disseminated to, you know, other news outlets pick it up from that news outlet. And then people start seeing it from there. But the initial conversation is happening on Twitter. The problem is you don't need to verify your identity on Twitter. And if you want to verify your identity, you have to play a political game. It's very strange who gets verified on Twitter and who doesn't. Twitter itself chooses who gets verified and they add that little blue badge verified identity and you can't just ask for it and sometimes a person with a thousand followers gets it and sometimes a person with a hundred thousand doesn't it doesn't quite make sense um but if you're in the press news organizations can get their people all verified so it's about supposed to be about like uh trustworthiness from the news so there's tons of people, every, the, you know, the bottom 90% or the other 90% of people are, that are not verified, what, whatever the percentage is, the large majority um, can be bots. And you know you're arguing with a bot when they don't have a profile picture, they don't have links in their bio to their real world work, and there's more actually. Their, their start date is very recent. They don't have a lot of followers and uh, there's a large string of numbers in their username. So they will have a, a display name that you can change to anything. And then there's the username next to it. That's the actual at such and such. And that'll have a six or seven or 10 digit number. Right. And then you'll notice their language is a little off. You'll notice most of all, you're in, you're almost always, um, you know, you're interacting a lot. Okay, so how do you know you're interacting with a bot? 
they're often inflaming the situation and making it um, triggering you, trying to get you into a fight, right? And so they'll either say something that's like super rah-rah for the team that they're supporting, blue or red, and it's like insanely pro that, or they are very much against whatever the opinion of the post was to the point where it's so such a bad take, as they say, that you feel the need to respond because it's like an insultingly bad take. This is called trolling, and they're doing it on purpose to kind of wound your ego to elicit a response. And you'll see real people that are actually verified arguing with bot accounts. Now, these accounts might be completely programmatic, or one person is controlling multiple accounts from a central you know, uh, interface. And if you see those red flags, you know this is fake. And so what happens, what happened during the COVID, uh, the coronavirus pandemic, I was the first person in my entire network that was sounding the alarm, right? I was telling people this shit is real. This is going to be bad. We're all going to get it. Get ready, right? And based on the trajectory I saw, I'm like, civil unrest is going to happen because of these factors involved. And I was right. Some people listened to me, some people didn't, but everybody now knows that I was right, right? I told everybody in my life about it that I just interacted with. The One of the major things that set me off, my alarm bells ringing early on, was that, and I'm talking before anybody else in the news was taking it seriously, before the government was taking it seriously. I, you know, it was people on the ground taking it seriously. One of the reasons that got me was that on Twitter, I was seeing videos being shared of people in China collapsing from this issue. And then I saw videos, then I, you know, the, another data point was the, I, the fact that Chinese New Year uh, coincided right after the outbreak and millions of people left Wuhan. So they spread it na- internationally. And then the uh, there's other videos of people, police roaming the streets in Wuhan, violently enforcing lockdowns, grabbing people out of their homes, right? F- violently grabbing them out of their homes and putting them in isolation. Uh, uh, other videos of people um, welding apartment buildings shut to force people to shelter in place, and some other videos of less, you know, ver- ferocity or uh, less provable um, claims, but that all, and then plus, you know, the case and the count and the spread and all this stuff. And I was like, oh my God, right? And initial fatality rates were like really high and initial initial case fatality rates and infection fatality rates and all this different stuff. I was like really, really high. And I was like, oh my God, if 1% of the population gets it and dies, this is going to be insane. That's what people were thinking at the time. One to 2% of the planet were going to get killed from this thing right? And now it hit America. It did not hit nearly as hard as we expected it to. Yes, cases are skyrocketing, but deaths have, uh, there is no, the second wave of cases is much higher than the first wave, but the second wave of deaths is much lower than the first wave, right? And if you don't accept the fact that uh, the summer protests were the result of that case spike, then you're not being data driven because you had a bunch of young people 
in close proximity. They all shared it amongst each other. Testing was expanded, you know, continuously. So it caught all these cases, but, and, and we see in it, the demographic shifted younger and then, but the death rate also dropped tremendously because of the demographic shift in cases as well. So, um, it wasn't the end of the world and it was supposed to be, I thought it was going to be really, really bad. Right. And it was bad, but I'm talking like 10 times what it is now. I thought many people thought it was going to be 10 times worse than it is now. Um, armchair pundits of the sort, right? And a lot of that was because of the videos I saw on Twitter. And then the New York Times came out with a series of articles about how China has been caught sharing pro-lockdown propaganda online to foment economic disaster amongst the international community so that some predict it would not be the only one that was kneecapped by this pandemic. So their motives aside, they definitely have been caught making matters worse via social media boosting of narratives that are damaging, that, that encouraged financially damaging policies by non-Chinese governments. Like that is pretty well established through several articles and good reporting by the New York Times. And you can research it, right? China, COVID propaganda, social media propaganda, and you'll see it. This is the power of bots because what we're trained as a human being through evolution is is to chunk data very quickly based on what we know and based on what has worked for us to survive to this point. So when we enter a new room, we very quickly get a sense of who's the leader in the room, who's dangerous in the room, and who's friendly in the room, right? We just like, boom, boom, boom. We know and we see their posture, the way their other people are looking at them is a really important indicator. The, the things other people are looking at is a very important indicator from for our survival evolutionarily, millions of years of, you know, of, how we look at each other and what we look up to. I mentioned it before. This is why we, when we're all looking up at celebrities in the movie theater, their elevated status and the fact that they get paid so much more than everybody else and the, is really magnified by the fact that everyone else is looking at them and everybody else knows them. And so if there's one person in the room everyone's looking at when you walk in and if we know they're important, because why else would everyone else be looking at them? And then if we see the looks on their faces and it's admiration, then we know that this person has an elevated status and we immediately, I mean, we're talking like a fraction of a second, know kind of what's going on. We at least know where that person stands. And most people will be like, ooh, I should go talk to them. Who are they? Are they a celebrity? Even if you don't know them, there's been experiments done where people will pretend, will, will fall for a fake celebrity in because of this, you know, someone walking through a mall with, with people taking paid photographers taking photographs and following them, paparazzi, you know, taking a picture of them. And so when on social media, the reason Twitter is so impactful is because it feels like we're having a one-on-one conversation with everybody on Twitter. That's kind of the the dominant medium of Twitter is one-to-one conversations. It's the world's chat room, the world's SMS, you know, group chat group text, 
It's the world's group text, right? And because there's so many people of high value there, so, you know, high status, then it's charged with this energy that like, wow, hey, man. Like, I mean, for instance, right? If The Rock tweets at you and says, hey, man, I really love what you're doing at the Aminicore podcast and it's verified, you're like, holy shit, The Rock knows about me? Oh, my God. And then that can get picked up by newspapers. And then people are going to be saying, who is this kid with this podcast that The Rock likes? Right? It could lead to real world consequences. And it does all the time. News story. I mean, how many times have you seen a Twitter post, the president aside, someone's tweet on the news? It happens all the time. So bots are taking advantage of all this and they will boost posts and conversations around posts and interactions to make you feel a certain way that A, B, or C is happening and you should feel about it, you know, this way about it. And that's a really big problem that nobody solved because these, these uh, the Facebooks and Twitters of the world don't want to get rid of all their bots at once because their monthly active users would drop considerably. Who knows how much? 10%? 50%? Like, we don't really know. Nobody knows. Because the bots are getting better and better every year. And governments are investing in the technology to upgrade their bots because it's information warfare, psychological warfare. We're not dropping pamphlets pamphlets from the sky anymore. You would never drop pamphlets on a Chicago because the people in Chicago would be like, what is this garbage, right? You would drop messages online. And you would get into all of their hands, into all of their brains, via their phones. And if now everyone is seeing the same message, they're going to talk about the real world. And now it's become real, even though it's a fake message. And this has happened and this is happening and it will continue to happen. So it's a big deal. So this is another major reason these platforms are going to get regulated up the kazoo. And now because they blocked that domain, it's over. Legal precedent will be, has been crossed, I believe. And you're going to see antitrust violations. You're going to see judiciary, you know, Senate committees. You're going to see presidential executive orders. I guarantee it. They're going to be broken up. Uh, anti uh, SEC violations. I mean, it's going to be a shit show. I used to guarantee. I don't know what's going to happen, but they've opened themselves up to fines for sure. Being broken up. Uh, Facebook itself has, you know, Facebook, WhatsApp, Messenger, Oculus. And Instagram, they could all be broken up and separated. Um, their stocks, God knows what they'll do to their stocks. And, you know, Professor Scott Galloway says he's been being in the war drum for uh, antitrust violation for a while. Not from this perspective, this PR, you know, inter, you know what would you call it? This uh, information warfare perspective, but from <clears throat> antitrust violation, monopoly perspective. And he's like, it increases shareholder value. It's a, it's, a, it's a tree that needs to get pruned regularly to grow. The economy is a tree that must, and this is me putting words in his mouth, is a tree that must be pruned regularly by regulators to grow larger. And this is one of the ways we do it through antitrust violations. And it's good for business. It's good for the economy and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, his book, The Four, is a really interesting dive into the business models of Amazon, Facebook, Uber and Whole Foods, maybe? Shoot, who was it? Four big companies and what makes them special? 
why they're special, how to get involved in their economies, how to make your company work like them, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a good, it's good reading. The four by Scott Galloway, he's like a marketing uh, professor out of New York. And he's got a podcast with Kara Kara Swisher, I think called Recode. Maybe that's the name of their publication, but um, he's he's got good good hot takes. You know, his batting average is not the best, but when he hits them, he hits them right out of the park. So it's a I think it makes up for it a lot. Um, so these things are going to get you know turned into utilities. They're going to become. regulated, they're going to be forced to choose a side, platform or publisher, and they're going to become, um, they're going to be, what would you call them? They're going to become like almost uh, architectural infrastructure of the web, right? Now the future, so launching another one of these is going to be really, really hard because who wants to open up a nuclear power plant? It's a pain in the ass, right? The regulations, the costs, da da da, da. and it's almost a monopoly, right? You can only have so many power plants of whatever kind in a certain geography. So, new ones coming online. You know, we got Pinterest, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, um, LinkedIn, and Google. I would say search engines. These are all kind of monopolies, and they all have a. They're all social platforms with user-generated content, right? Google itself is a way to connect people's blogs, I would say. Originally, that's what it came for. And that's where you kind of go to. The number one the number one content that gets ranked the, the most, the highest on their platforms is what they're built around, is what people go there for, is why people started joining in the first place. And then the nucleus around which this whole thing was, these clouds were formed, and on Google, it is blog posts, right? Content, SEO, come on. Now, future social media platforms, and I speak from experience here because I tried launching a social media platform for a year. Great technology, licensed it. It was like, oh, great. Beautiful Facebook-like clone, but with better, you know, some better functionality. And nightmare, nightmare. Zero traction, practically, because it didn't have a specific enough purpose, I found out in the end. And it was my theory, and I wasn't even, I was, I didn't know how right I was. I said, let's make a social media platform for X. Well, it wasn't defined enough, and getting users there, it was just not happening. And the opportunity is in launching social media sites for X that better than I did meet the needs of people of of you know people interested in X. For instance, a social media site for yoga teachers, right? Yes, you can run your your yoga practice on Facebook, but if the, every yoga teacher has a profile in X, Y, or Z, now they can all talk to each other about yoga. There's a certain vibe there. Everyone that comes there is interested in yoga, right? Now, the the teachers have pages, and those pages have functionalities built for yoga instructors that would match their real-world needs. You know, payments and classes, scheduling, 
um, you know, affiliate, like, um, what would you call it? Uh, product sales, you know, um, daily videos, mantras, right? Whatever it is, it would have a vibe that matches the, the community, but also functionality that better suits that community. And it would not make money by uh, traditional advertisement because it's a smaller community, right? Traditional advertisement cost per thousand clicks, CPM advertisement, cost per click advertisement just doesn't work unless you have a ton of viewers, right? Other revenue models that will work in these things are membership based like Patreon and affiliate clicks, affiliate marketing. So getting a commission for every product sold. Um, those two models, the affiliate model can work on a smaller, on a medium sized network. And then membership works on really small networks, but it's really challenging to get it to work. You have to get the revenue model right because once you do, it's hard, but once you do, you can then pay for user acquisition, knowing that there's a lifetime value of the customer that is longer than larger than the customer acquisition cost. And you can't just launch, I mean, parlor launched, but it's like a clunky web app where, you know, it's not where news breaks and you don't see both sides there. And it's like a, you know, one-sided echo chamber, you know? So I like being on Twitter because I can follow the full spectrum of political and sociopolitical um, ideologies because I want to see what everyone's thinking. That's kind of the point of being open-minded and inquisitive is what's really going on with the zeitgeist, right? And I want to see people I disagree with. So my point being, if you just started other, you know, like Parler, even they are like a sort of, they, whether or not they claim it, they're like a social media site for conservatives. Like I would say that, something like that. Not quite Republicans, but conservatives. And getting customers over there is going to be too expensive. And so it's through word of mouth that they're growing, but there isn't going to be enough of a critical mass to, um, generate ad revenue. So they're going to even need membership. And then, yeah, so pretty, pretty crazy. So you're going to see, you know, and I just found a website called tribe.so. I think it's a Canadian company, Persian guy running it, which is kind of cool. Um, they have the best software to date that I could find free tier for life. And then there's increased tiers to get started. Great functionality better than mine. I was undercapitalized and um, it's a, it's a kind of company you need in-house tech, tech technology development. You need a engineering department, software uh, development, you know, a, you need programmers as part of your company to make it. There's just, otherwise it doesn't work. So we were outsourcing it with a partner company that, that it just wasn't, it wasn't going to work too expensive, too slow. And, um, and there's a bunch of these like turnkey platforms. And so it's really useful for brands because you get a place where you're in control. It's a community around a certain topic or of interest, but you still need functionality and modules for specific needs of users. Right? So, you know, for me, I want 
a social media uh, a network for marketers. And part of that needs to have e-course sales functionality, digital product selling, you know, like a digital product store, digital commerce store, an e-commerce functionality for digital products. I don't need to sell physical products, but I, you know, I would need an LMS functionality, learning management system, because it's all training and then PDFs and, you know, to download, but then also um, on-demand printing through a partner. So you get my books and you print, you click on them and then they ship to you on demand and then membership tiers, right? And like paid access to whatever I want to gate, gating control. You can join my group for X, Y, or Z, free, medium, whatever tier. You can buy my book for this. You can buy a membership. It gets you access. So there's another website called Podia that has the e-commerce functionality, but not the social media functionality. And I'm like, oh, somebody combine these two for marketing and it would be supercharged. It would be incredible. Right now I'm hobbling it together the best I can, but um, anyway, social media is about to go through massive changes. The future is uncertain for them, but there is ample room for a social media site for every single niche. Lawyers, doctors, accountants, basketball players, college students, uh, homeschoolers, like anything, right? And uh, someone's going to be making that turnkey service with the modularity of content controlling and monetization. That's a key, another part. All right. So let's get into the news. Dun, 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 dun. What's going on? All right. Big brands cushion LVMH's losses. Is that Louis or whatever? How do you say that? Louis Vuitton. So gains at Dior, Louis Vuitton, helped offset declines in other luxury segments. This is interesting, too, because weren't they supposed to be bought by somebody and then they backed out? Right. right. Whoever owns Tiffany's, here, it's saying it here. Um, and revenue as it watched. So revenue at Bulgari and Tagur was down 14% hit by the absence of tourist shoppers from Asia. That division is under scrutiny in the legal battle that LVMH is waging with Tiffany and company over its sour deal to buy the U.S. jeweler. LVMH in court filings has argued that pandemic has been particularly harmful for Tiffany, causing a material adverse change in the business that would allow the French conglomerate to back out of the merger agreement. Nobody was going into Tiffany and company's stores. And so LVMH was like, we're buying you for your stores. If no one's coming in, what's the point? And uh, they wanted to back out and they're getting sued by Tiffany and company to, <laughs> to not back out. And that's a, that's a funny lawsuit, isn't it? Hey, I'm suing you. You have to buy me. You have to pay me. You have to buy my garbage now, my garbage stocks. Blackstone raises wager on science properties. That's interesting. Blackstone Group is extending its big bet on biotechnology and other life science buildings, a hot field that is getting hotter as scientists pursue a vaccine for COVID-19. Interesting. So physical properties. The New York investment firm said it looked at selling, taking public, selling or taking public biomed realty trust, the second largest U.S. owner of the life sciences building. So 93 properties. Interesting. 
The sale price of 14 billion point 14.6 billion amounts to about 6.5 billion gain in value. Oh my god. Westfield's owner offered two options that don't appeal. Uh-oh. Shareholder in Europe's largest property company uh, have a choice between two bad options. A group of investors at Unibail, Rodemco, Westfield, which owns the big Westfield mall, malls in San Francisco and London, as well as similar properties across continental Europe, came out. Westfield, isn't that also, I think, um, Old Orchard Shopping Center in Chicago suburbs, North Shore? Um, came out on Thursday against plans for a dilutive rights issue worth £3.5 billion, equivalent to $4.1 billion. French telecom billionaire Xavier Neal is in the activist camp and an added twist. So is one of the company's former chief executives, Leon Bressler. What does that mean? So the mall uh, across came out on Thursday against plans for dilutive rights issue worth. The board, the plan to vote against the board at ballot next month, which would be troublesome. Although the dissenters own just 4.1% of Unibail's stock, the company needs two thirds of its shareholders to approve the rights issue. The activists will try to convince their peers that an alternative proposal for Unibail to sell its portfolio of U.S. malls is a better option that would effectively reverse Unibail Redemco's $25 billion takeover of Westfield portfolio less than three years after the deal closed. Something that need that something does need to be done about Unibail's debt. The company headed into the pandemic with borrowing equivalent of 10 times its earnings before interest. So they're trying to restructure its debt or be able to restructure to pay off its debt and either issue a bunch of new stock, which would dilute the board's control or sell properties, which would not dilute the board's control. Seems to be the case. I'm not sure. Morgan Stanley, oh my God, Morgan Stanley's profit advances by 25%. Good Lord. Morgan Stanley said its quarterly profits rose 25% from a year ago. Another US, another big US bank to skate unscathed through the rockiest economy in years. Profit of twenty of two point seven two billion or a dollar sixty six a share was higher than a year ago and beat analysts' forecasts. Revenue rose sixteen percent to eleven point six six billion. Good lord. What was it about? Each so profits big changes of foot the firm struck two big deals this year, acquiring E-Trade Financial for $11 billion and Eton Vance Corp in a $7 billion deal that's expected to close next year. Ah, so growth through acquisition. Crazy time. Albertsons wins bankruptcy auction for King's Balducci stores. Bankrupt parent company of King's Food Markets and Baldacci Balducci is named Albertsons Co's. The winner at a Chapter 11 auction for supermarket operators with a $96.4 million cash bid. The backup bidder is New York investment from TLI Bedrock LLC, which had an earlier served as the lead bidder with a $75 million offer to set a floor to beat at auctions. The sales to Albertson's division Acme Markets, Inc. will require the approval of U.S. Bankruptcy Court in the White Plains, New York, before closing. Interesting. Mall owner doesn't deals don't appeal. Morgan Stanley is da, da, da. Walgreen boosts store closure as profit declines. 
Yeah, man. I mean, you walk into a Walgreens and it's just like the sense of decay is so apparent that no matter how nice the building itself is, you know, you know, they're just nobody wants to be in there. Nobody wants to be in there. You're not in there because you're healthy. There's nothing in there to make you healthy. It's all just a bunch of, you know, let's think, what is it? You walk in, there's cigarettes immediately behind the counter. Okay, cancer causing, great. Then you walk into the soda aisle and it's just sugar. Okay, great, diabetes inducing. Then you walk back to the pharmacy and it's like, great, uh, unexpected or unanticipated um, side effect inducing products, great. And then you walk down the food aisle and it's all packaged crap, you're like, great indigestion and inflammation consuming, right? You walk to the dairy aisle and it's like all cheap ass yogurt and bacon and like gotten more inflammation inducing. And you walk through the aisles and it's like crap toys from, you know, uh, cheap manufacturers or like the best spot in the holiday section, whatever that aisle is, right? And it's just like cheap plastic everywhere. And you're like, great, that's probably leaching into our bodies too and uh, affecting our hormones, right? And there's like nothing in there that's positive for the human being. <laughs> it's so depressing. That's the difference between the new economy and the old economy, right? CVS got rid of cigarettes behind the counter. That's a move to align with the new economy. People don't want to go into your store where everything you sell destroys their body, right? Like nobody wants that. If they have to, they go in there because they need something or they don't know better or they're broken. They don't have other options. Right. So you got to get with the program, Walgreens. You have to shift your focus. You should be selling supplements behind the counter. You should be selling non-sugar drinks. You should be selling um, low sugar candy. You should be selling um, clean local dairy and, and eggs. Right. Vertex shares plunge after experimental drug is halted. Oh, wow. Oh, it's a fibrosis drug. Wait, in Boston, stopping development of experimental drug because of, yeah. Trial two for the treatment of a rare liver and lung disease called alpha-1 antistrypsin deficiency. I thought it was COVID-based. New CEO appointed at McCann Ad Agency. Interpublic group of companies has promoted Bill Cobb to chairman and CEO of Creative Agency Network McCann Wolf Group. The company said Thursday he will succeed Harris Diamond, who plans to retire at the end of the year, the company said. Bill's long and blah, blah, blah. The change is part of the broader succession plan at IPG. Blah, blah, blah. Mr. Cobb, 57, was named McCann World's Group's chief operating officer just in June. He was previously global president of diversified agencies. I mean, a world I'm not a part of, and I don't want to be. Ad agencies take a cut of your ad spend. That model disallows efficiency online and promotes poor ad placement, which gets them more money. And they, they are legacy media folks treating the web like cap, you know, web users like captive audiences of television, print, and radio. Their entire business model does not work and is only, the industry is only growing through mergers and acquisitions and is being floated by companies that don't need, that aren't able to launch new products because they have, outside of established markets and distribution channels. 
Because the only way to have big ad agency works is if they plaster your name everywhere and then you go somewhere else and you see the product and you buy it. No one is clicking on a Honda ad on YouTube to buy a Honda car ever. But if they just changed it and made it a DIY show about Honda cars, how to, you know, take care of a Honda pickup truck, it would cost them, you know, 500 grand a year for the whole show versus, oh no, I should end soon, versus 500 grand for a 30 second TV spot, let alone the million and a half they spend on advertisement with, you know, 10th of that going online or whatever. So that whole, that whole, uh, that's insane. And publicist revenue measures improved from earlier in the year. 2.7 billion net revenue of publicists in the third quarter. Good God. So at Paris-based publicist group SA, organic revenue and industry measure that strips out currency effects, acquisitions, and disposal fell 5.6 in the quarter. The decline represents an improvement from the 13% drop in the second quarter. Okay. Publicists have captured business from clients, shifting budgets to digital media and commerce, shift executive officer. So they're shifting and they're still losing money, 5.6 versus 13%. Give me a break. They can't, you can't charge, you can't charge a markup on ad spend and win in the future of digital media. Because if you do your job right, you're spending 10 times less in ad spend. So what would you, why would you take a cut of that? But if you knew what you're doing, that's how you would get those results. If you don't know what you're doing, or you know not to open your mouth, then you charge on top of ad spend. So, you know, if you have a client that's spending 100K, you either charge them 30%, or let's say 15, 15 to 30%, right? So 20, let's just say 20% to make it easy. So you, they got to spend 120 with you to spend 100 online, or they take they, you take 20 off of the, the top and they spend 80 online, and then you're incentivized to blow through that to get another 100k, because that's where your money is. It's up. They they make their money on the upcharge on hours worked and dollars spent advertising, right? So they're incentivized to deliver overly complex projects built from scratch, custom engineered, blah, 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 and spend more on ads, right? And so if you have a fixed goal and you're like, we want to increase revenue by two to 3%. Okay. Well, we're going to spend as much money as we can to get you that bump because that's fixed. And if we are, you know, 20% as efficient as we should be, we have to spend five times as much. We make that difference, that money. And guess what? You're going to get overly complicated websites that nobody likes using that don't convert because they're not giving people the information they want when they want it, how they want it, which is proven out by hundreds of billions of dollars in, in testing and how that's effect, you know, effective. Digital marketing practices are known, period. What increases conversion rates are known, period. And uh, so you're spending too much money on the on the work and then you're spending too much money on the ads and you're not getting the return you need. And it only works for insanely rich companies that have established sales channels that are generating the revenue. And then, oh, we can't tie our work to, you know, half of your marketing is working. We just don't know which half is the quote, right? Give me a break. I know exactly how much is working at all times. Get out of here with that nonsense. Prices of European coal climb. 
Plastic markets hit by glut, huh? Chemical companies, uh, chemicals have also pushed back plans for large U.S. plants. Chemical companies since 2010 have spent $96 billion to complete more than 200 projects linked to the U.S. shale industry, with a further $99 billion in projects under construction or in planning, state, in planning stages, according to the American Chemistry Council. Dow led the recent American petrochemical boom with the construction of the Gulf Coast's largest ethylene plant, which opened in 2017. But last year, as Dow swung to a $1.4 billion annual loss, the company vowed to cut spending, moving away from building larger new facilities and focus on low-risk incremental investments that generate quicker returns. Yeah, it's a tough spot. Yoga Works shuts sites and seeks bankruptcy. Private equity-backed Yoga Works has filed for bankruptcy and plans to permanently close its dozens of studios across the U.S. but keep offering virtual classes. Hello, social media site for yoga students. Here we go. The California-based yoga studio chain is the latest fitness business to succumb to shutdowns and restrictions on gym classes and in-person gatherings related to... I mean, they literally could sell mats and weights and subscriptions to live yoga classes and make more money. They just have to iron out the wrinkles, optimize that sales funnel. Stocks fall as jobs data worsens. Stocks dropped as tightening coronavirus lockdowns in Europe and a weakening jobs picture in the U.S. cast a shadow on markets. Yeah. Walgreens boosted boots. Walgreens Boots Alliance rose $1.73 a share, 4.8%, after the drugstore chain reported stronger than expected earnings. Good for them. Shares of United Airlines holdings fell 3.8%. The, year on the, the yield on the 10-year Treasury note edged up to 0.73 from 0.721. Europe's COVID lockdowns dim fuel outlook. New coronavirus lockdown measures in Europe dragged the region's stocks lower Thursday and threatened to hamper fuel demand, reigniting worries about slowing economic growth around the world. European banks lowered debt buyers as shares stall. Stocks and bonds imply cash isn't trash. COVID-19 shakes up world of plastics. Furthermore, so stocks and bonds imply cash is in trash. Stocks, stock valuations are incredibly high, but the long-term treasury, but the long-term treasuries that investors typically use to safeguard the portfolios are shockingly expensive. Under these circumstances, the better hedge might be old-fashioned cash. Interesting. All right, everybody. Well, have a great Friday. And, uh,